for a TV interview, he like was so disgusting looking. Like he had dandruff all over his shoulders. And I just can't believe somebody so messy is like our premier, you know? Ugh. I love it. Uh, can this go in the podcast? Yeah, I, you can put that one in. I'll, I want people to know that. I'll, put, I'll cut. I'll just put that'll be like the lead. <laughs> Welcome to Our Calgary, episode 004. I am your friendly neighborhood Rude Pinoy and host El Costello, aka Papa Lucas, aka Lucas Costello. Thank you for pressing play. I hope you are staying safe in these times, and if you're struggling, please feel free to reach out by emailing connect at ourcalgary.org. Uh, what's that? Oh, that. That, our Calgary listeners, is me trying something new today. In, In case, case you, you missed miss it. It. As with most reactionary right-wing governments and their supporters these days, the key to their success is to overwhelm and exhaust your attention and empathy with half-truths, weekend announcements, and a deluge of bad policies. The In Case You Missed It segment will try to parse out the worst from the bad to help us counter the myths that they are good with money, good at governance, or good at anything at all, really, other than enriching themselves and their cronies. In, In case, case you, you missed miss it. it. Number one. Last week, Jason Kenney's UCP were caught with their ass out, ready to cut Aish. That's the terribly named Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped Program. And Rajan Sani, Minister of Community and Social Services, who in my opinion has been one of the most disappointing and craven MLAs to come out of Calgary, hopped on Facebook to tell people, no, 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 it's just a service review. Which still left folks skeptical and wondering, does that mean less eligibility for medications covered, mobility aids, and so on? Nope. Jason Kenny cleared that up for us the other day. She and her uh, team are looking at, at ways to deliver that program more efficiently. One thing we do have to look at very seriously is the fact that the number of people qualifying for... Initially, H was a program designed for the severely handicapped. Um, but the population of people qualifying has been growing... Uh, uh, far, far faster than the overall population. And so they have to look at issues like that. What are the uh, criteria? Um, how do we define severely uh, handicapped uh, in this day and age? So those are the kinds of issues that they're looking at. As translated by Duncan Kinney from Progress Alberta. I'm not cutting Aish. I'm cutting people off from Aish. It's a very important difference. Number two, UC peers and their friends at the trough. The Alberta UCP government has shoveled about $3 million toward their supporter and donor Steve Allen in order to continue to have a not-so-public inquiry tilt at the imaginary windmills of 
foreign funded environmentalists. Based on the already thoroughly discredited, air quotes, research of an air quotes again, independent researcher based in BC, feel like there are about 40,000 other better ways to have spent that money. This is in addition to the $2 million they are about to spend on finding out that yes, yes, in fact, it would cost more to have an Alberta pension plan or a provincial police force. Imagine that. QP Alberta has started a campaign at don'ttouchcpp.ca that can loop you into the work they're doing to combat this terrible and costly idea. I'll link that in the show notes. Number three. Unfortunately, like many other cities in Canada and the US now, dozens of weirdos in Calgary have been infected by the COVID is a hoax by 5G pedos meme and have taken to marching on the Bow River pathway and harassing customers in fabric stores in order to infect others with their collective delusion. Please keep your masks handy, folks. These people are dangerous. Number four. Speaking of hoaxes, Jeremy Farkas, a.k.a. Councillor Farce, announced his intentions to run for mayor yesterday. I would keep my eyes on him. A lot of folks are writing him off already, but having seen firsthand the rise of Rob Ford, Councillor Farce definitely seems to be cribbing from the same playbook. That's your In Case You, case missed, you missed It for it. episode 004 of Our Calgary. Yes, that was a pitch and a hit, because this is the pitch. Get it! <laughs> if you like what you hear, and you want to invest in the vision of a podcast that celebrates workers and diverse voices, please go to patreon.com slash ourcalgary and click subscribe for as little as $3 a month or more if you can. Again, that's patreon.com slash our Calgary, even if you're not in Calgary, because I truly believe that if we can shift perceptions in Calgary, it will have ripple effects across the country. Then I can also give you a shout out on the next episode. If money is tight right now, I completely and totally get it. But please hit subscribe on your podcast provider, share, like, forward to your champagne socialist friends, and so on. Our interview for episode 004 is with Mary Johannes, a former journalist with the now-dissolved Star Metro and prior to that, CBC Calgary. I wanted to speak with Mary because the last time I saw her prior to the pandemic, she, like many young Calgarians, was planning to leave. Obviously, young people's voices are not monolithic, but I was especially interested to hear her reasons for wanting to leave, both as a racialized woman who grew up in Calgary, but also as a person who had a sense of the media landscape in the city. We talked about the impact of COVID on those plans, her transition to work as a support worker for people living with addictions, representation in Calgary media, Kendall Jenner, and a whole lot more in the interview, which starts right now. Yeah, I guess like I wanted to move to Toronto because like I've grown it. I've lived in Calgary my whole life. Um, I was born in Edmonton, but we moved here when I was one. So I'm a Calgarian. And I always like to tell people like my friends who live in more diverse cities that when I was growing up, you could go like a whole day without seeing a black person, uh, depending on like what quadrant of the city you're in, you were in. And so 
been drawn to Toronto first and foremost for the diversity, not even just like the fact that there's like so many black people, but like now that I'm getting older, I, I think I do want to live in a city that is like blacker, that has more diversity. And another thing that's always drawn me to Toronto is that they're like the arts is such a big thing there. And I think they like value the arts in a way that Calgary doesn't yet. It's changing. You know, there's like a lot of amazing artists in the city who are trying to like push for like more funding for um, the arts, more diversity in the arts. But there's always like some resistance in the city. And currently with the UCP, like it's been pretty depressing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I want to live in Jason Kenny's Alberta. So you're saying you know? Jason Kenny is bad for young people. Is is that <laughs> yeah, I think he's bad for everybody. Like, he, I think he's the worst. Yeah, like, he just gets me so. I just can't even, like, verbalize how much I dislike him, but I just think he's the worst premier. Um, I think he's an awful person. And I don't know how at this point he has any followers because he's attacked literally every single group. He's gone for, like, funding cuts in healthcare, in education, in the arts, in anti racism work, in addictions work. I don't know why people are still drawn to him. Yeah. But I guess his ratings are pretty bad. They're Yeah, they're dropping in a major way. I think he is the most disliked premier in mainland Canada and the second most disliked premier in all of Canada, with the premier of Newfoundland being the most disliked. But to be honest, having spent some time in Newfoundland, I can tell you that most folks in Newfoundland haven't liked uh, a pre- their premier since Danny Williams from the early mm-hmm. 2000s. So it, it's disliking people in power is is kind of a feature <laughs> in Newfoundland, <laughs> regardless uh, as someone uh-huh. who has a former father-in-law from Newfoundland. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I hear you about the the Toronto piece. I think there there is, you know, as someone who lived there for 15 years. I feel like there's definitely a big allure there, especially if you're you're on the come up in the arts, right? Because it's so much media is concentrated in that region, yeah. and and on top of the fact that you also have this sort of, you know, for me as a touring musician, it was made life easier because you'd be able to go to do the university t- tour circuit, and you just had a lot yeah. more concentration there. Whereas out here in Western Canada, I had friends who were in bands. And from BC, for instance, and they would say, you know, it was a lot harder for us because there wasn't a lot to do, right? If mm-hmm. you didn't have enough money to get the visas and stuff in place to, to do the States, then you had, you know, Vancouver, Whistler, and then you had to hike over the, the Rockies to get to any other major cities or university towns, right? So there's definitely, that is a, a big factor and and I think the support, but I will say this, I will say this to Calgary's credit. I actually, and maybe it's because I'm still new here, I totally mm-hmm. agree with you on the the diversity aspect. That That is very strange to me. But I, I feel like even the neighborhoods in, in the core of Toronto, that is shifting. There's There was sort of this idea of you know, white flight to the suburbs in America and, and I guess to a lesser extent in Canada. And 
that sort of thing is happening now where it's homogenizing the cores again. I don't know if that ever happened in Calgary. I, I can't I can't say I feel like it's a very segmented city, uh, like you were saying around the idea of certain areas, you would not see any racialized people or a black person rather, mm -hmm. sorry, your words. So I think that's an interesting thing for folks to hear about as well, right? There is segregation in Calgary, not in, a, in the sense of you can only go here, but very much invisible in the sense of the Northeast is a certain type of area. The Northwest is a certain type of area. Right. And can you yeah. can you talk to me a bit about that in terms of what was that like for you? And, you know, what quadrant of the city were you in and what what what's that experience as a young person like when if you said because I know, for instance, right in Toronto, if I said, oh, I live in Parkdale, that gives people a certain sense of, oh, you're an artsy person. But that's also kind of there's this reputation of it being a tougher neighborhood or whatever. Is, is there that sort of thing here in Calgary as well? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of like bounced around the city for the first part of my life. I lived in an apartment right across from Princess Island Park, which was awesome, which is actually really sad because that area used to be full of like new immigrants, like single moms. It was like affordable to live there. And the, the building I used to live in has been knocked down and there's like this gorgeous like um, apartment and like condo building there. But poor people can't afford to live there anymore. So we're getting like pushed out of the um, more central parts of the city. And yeah, so I grew up there and then we kind of like slowly made our way to the Northeast. I spent some time in the Southeast or Southwest, but I'm a Northeast girl myself. I really rep the Northeast. I really love the Northeast and I will not tolerate any kind of Northeast slander. And in Calgary, the Northeast has always been considered like the hood. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot more people of color in the Northeast, always has been, but I find that the Northeast is actually designed better for like you don't really need a car in the Northeast. Like there's like a lot of uh, reliable transportation. There's like grocery stores that are like within walking distance. There's a lot of like local businesses and stuff. So I feel like for families, the Northeast is actually like the best quadrant. But again, there we've always been the hood of the city, the poorer part of the, the city and have always gotten like a pretty bad reputation. I remember when I was in high school, cause I went to Forest Lawn High School my friends who were going to Central were like, oh, you're going to need a gun. That's gross. And That's gross. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. I remember, like, my first day of high school, though, I was so terrified because, like, Forrest at the time was, like, considered, like, the worst school. Like, the, there's, like, gangs there. There's, like, all this violence there. And I was, like, begging my mom. I was like, please, I need to, like, I can't go to Forest Lawn. And she's like, I don't know what to do. It's your designated school. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then yeah. I got there. It was like so chill. There was so some of the smartest kids I've ever met attended Forest Lawn. Like it was right. the most relaxed experience. Uh, yeah. So we've always had like that bad um, reputation, even though like the crime rate in the Northeast is less than the crime rate in the Northwest, I believe. And the Northeast is more policed. So Wow. So it doesn't really like fit. Well, and with our, our new justice minister, it's yeah. going to get more police too, mm -hmm. apparently. Uh, any? Do you have any hot takes on the historic nomination? I don't know if you listened to the last episode, but 
Maki and I, uh, Maki Matopanyane, an amazing professor and human being. Also, shout out to Maki. Oh, she's great. She was the first subscriber to our Patreon. Uh, (laughs) 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 Yeah, so, you know, we had kind of just been talking about he's shown us who he is already and sort of his prior actions and, and prior roles and prior statements. And then, you know, literally the day after the interview, he's basically saying that racialized neighborhoods or, in his words, minorities have more crime Therefore, we shouldn't defund police, and therefore, we should give more money to the police. Even though, actually, as a municipal affairs person, he he actually reduced funding to the RCMP, which is also ironic in and of itself. But... Yeah. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Is do you do you agree with the CBC's take? That do you have optimism? <laughs> uh, I just feel like, first of all, if you're a person of color and Jason Kenney likes you, something is wrong with that. But I did read the article. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Or like right off the bat, I don't trust this guy. But so yeah, I just think that that the real story in this, because the journalists had only spoken to three black voices. And obviously, if two of them are optimistic, and one of them is skeptical, you're going to say, okay, like, the black community is optimistic. But I think the real story and the better story would have been that that the young black community is like really concerned over this. Um, I don't think they trust this government. I think the I think this conversation is more nuanced than the article is making it out to be. And at the root of the issue, I don't think that we can have like real progressive change and progressive change needed to tackle systemic racism coming from an incredibly conservative government, especially you know, the government who like last year cut the human rights education and multiculturalism fund that has been around since 1988 in Alberta and has funded different organizations and nonprofits to do like anti-racism work. So I don't know. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's an interesting piece too, because I, I heard a little bit about that that made a little bit of news around the human rights funding and so forth. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's one, on, on, on the one hand, I understand that the media environment we exist in now is so on all the time and folks are chasing stories all the time and the next Absolutely. thing. And I understand that click-through rates and all of these things have an impact mm-hmm. on editorial decision-making to some extent. However, I also feel like what the newsrooms look like can have a huge impact on the stories that are told as well. So as someone who worked at, I think, two of the biggest media organizations in Calgary, aside from post-media, that were not post-media, also congratulations Mm -hmm. on not falling into the blob that is post media in Alberta. For folks who aren't in Alberta, just a bit of context. As we know in Canada, post media owns a whole bunch of papers. In Alberta, they pretty much own all the papers. And there's not any contrasting viewpoints, not even a liberal viewpoint in this city, especially. 
and more so across the province as well. So it's very much a homogenous viewpoint in terms of class and race. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say so. So tell me a bit about your your newsroom experiences yourself, if you're okay with that. I don't want you to get, you know, excommunicated from, from the, <laughs> the world of journalism or anything. But uh, yeah, how, tell me a bit about that, because I think that's a, especially in this context right now where, you know, CBC is saying things like Black Voices Matter or whatever on the bottom of articles written by white people. Yeah. Well, I graduated journalism from journalism school in 2017. And then I, through my professor, I got a job at CBC for the summer, like a a four month contract. Um, And I was an assistant uh, producer for the evening show there, which was, it was a really cool experience. But I think from that experience, um, even though my team was great, I don't think I would want to uh, so CBC Calgary is just an incredibly white newsroom and they're all a little bit older and I would say they're like more middle class. So I think at the time that I was working there, I was, I was the only black person in the building that wasn't like a security guard or a cleaner. And then there was like a couple, like a handful of other POC journalists, but I, I don't know if they were ever really too concerned about that, about the lack of diversity. I know in Edmonton, CBC Edmonton has like a, a younger and more diverse group of reporters, which is awesome. And I think that shows in like the stories they tell and, and um, the stories that they push for. But um, I remember once they were reporting, one journalist was writing a, uh, an article on some issue that pertained to like black people and I had all of these reporters coming to my desk and asking me Mary do you prefer the word uh black person a person of color african-american and like that was a weird moment and that should have been like a moment to pause and be like and reflect and wonder like why why is it that nobody in this newsroom knows how to write stories about black people and then also like why aren't there more than just like one black reporter right. who technically wasn't even a reporter. Right. So you're, you're the voice of everybody, all the, everybody, black, people. All the black people, African-Americans, the, which is a very huge diaspora to begin yeah. with. And yeah. wow, that's, that's a lot though. Totally. I think, you know, don't beat yourself up about not taking a pause. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in, you're in it. You're a young person just out of J school mm-hmm. and, you know, these people who are supposed to be knowledge keepers essentially because they've been in this field for however long come to you showing that they are ignorant about these things, which I think is a good learning experience in and of itself. Totally. It's right. Is I think the one thing in the freelancing I've done and, and so on, I think that it really helped me realize that at the end of the day, all of these folks, no matter how much money they have, no matter how famous they are, at the end of the day, they're people, they are just as complicated Mm -hmm. and just as, as stupid as I am about various topics and various subjects. And on the one hand, that's okay. But on the other hand, for me, I think the huge problem is when you have things happening where 
this conversation about diversity in newsrooms and having broader range of voices in newsrooms and in entertainment and in writers rooms and so on and so forth this has been happening for i mean at least since the 90s that i can recall mm-hmm. right and it's you know before people get used to get angry about political correctness and now people are getting angry about this idea of cancel culture which to be honest i'm in this uh, weird place about because uh, yeah me too yeah okay okay cool well maybe that's and an maybe you me and maki can have a, an episode just kicking kicking around that idea because i really yeah i people are complicated yeah people say things that they regret but don't necessarily mean harm and i think that when those folks when folks just get written off because of of something they said because maybe they don't have that exposure mm-hmm. it it can i don't know i have a lot of i struggle with that and then on the other hand a lot of these people that are complaining about cancel culture are actually really powerful people and they'll never get canceled anyway right absolutely i just think yeah. you have to give time give people time to like reflect to really think about like what they did wrong and like how they could mm-hmm. do better before mm-hmm. you can accept their apology it's more with like with like i don't know yeah, I don't know. Council culture is weird and I am not really for it. But like if it's a, a big like if it's like a big company like Coca-Cola or something like yeah, let's cancel them for, you know, or like Pepsi is a good one with their um handing oh, an officer. Kylie Jenner. Was Kendall, <laughs> was yeah, that was so funny. I remember during the protests in June. Did you ever watch Avatar the Last Airbender growing up? A little bit, a little but bit. You know of how it, there's but... like that line where it's like when the world needed him the most, he disappeared. I was just like, oh, where's where's Kendall? She. <laughs> 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 Getting her personal lip filler no. uh, person to come by. It's That's so funny. She's she's. She's hiding away and and uh, quarantining with her her cosmetic consultants. Um, sorry, not to. I'm gonna probably cut that. I'll get canceled for saying what I just said. <laughs> you know, all by all 25 listeners of the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, I think that's a it's a much bigger conversation. And again, right, even with these efforts. I don't know how effective it is. And I get it, right? Like I get, it makes people feel like they did something in a way. But at the same time, I also worry that it, it also creates this idea that, Oh, this thing has been done. Mm -hmm. Now I tweeted my desire to never drink a, this type of sugar water, Mm-hmm. you know, racism is solved mm-hmm. or whatever. Not not to say that's what people are necessarily, and I understand also that people do other things in their lives aside from tweeting at some, you know, multinational corporations. But at the end of the day, right, it's, I think about, for instance, the Chick-fil-A in Toronto. And the owner of Chick-fil-A is terrible human, gives tons of money to anti-LGBT policies and so on and so forth. And people have been boycotting it. And yet, it's still 
open in Toronto and people are still lining up. And and that's the other thing. I think that's weird reaction to people trying to oppose these these bad actors Mm -hmm. creates this sort of deification, right? I think, and this is a kind of the last piece I want to talk about it because again, I think it's, it's such a nuanced and difficult conversation. But if you think about Jordan Peterson, for example, he's the worst. He is. I've interviewed him. He's actually crazy. Oh, really? Tell me about that. I want to hear about this. Yeah, I was working at the star and a bunch of arts groups in the city were trying to boycott or they wanted right. they wanted Arts Commons to cancel the Jordan Peterson talk. He had a book coming out and he was like doing it because they were saying like uh, they were worried for the safety of, uh, you know, people who use those spaces like the artists who so often are people of color or LGBTQ Trans. people. Yeah. yeah. And he's like really not their number one fan. And I was writing the story and then I think one of my editors was like, it'd be great if you could just talk to Jordan Peterson. And then another reporter was like, I think I have his cell phone. And I just called him and it was like early in the morning and he was just having breakfast. And then he agreed to the interview and he was so just insane. Like I was asking him about um, like the safety concerns and he's like, like he just couldn't get beyond the fact that like safety doesn't necessarily mean like it doesn't mean like his uh, his uh, followers are going to like beat up like LGBTQ people, but them being there and like even just like verbalizing like hate is a safety concern for people, right? Um, mm-hmm. So he can get over that, and then he kept on like, "Mary, do you believe in free speech?" And he was just like screaming at me, and I was like, "Okay, but <laughs> within reason, I think. Like, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say everybody deserves a platform if they are like racist or or anti LGBTQ or you know." Mm-hmm. So he was just, just absolutely like. A was, very like unhinged man. Was I would he say. on his his daughter's red meat diet at that time? <laughs> yeah, he was. I think, but uh, uh-huh. I didn't talk to him about that. But that that was so funny too. Oh god, he's just really just oh, just blows my mind. No, he's the worst, and I think it's it's insidious too, right? Because I get the appeal to some extent, right? Where we're in this space right now, where men are losing their position in terms of total dominance in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, very limited spaces of this as well. But this idea that just by being a dude in the world, especially a white dude in the world, you can just go to a an office and say, hey, I want to work here. And they'll say, we respect your gumption. Come clean some windows and then in 10 years you'll be the CEO or whatever, you know, myth of capitalism, then, you know, that, that doesn't exist anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Jobs are completely atomized. There's very low union density. So wages are uh, at an all time low and so on. And then somebody comes along saying that, Hey, you know, that time that someone made you feel small, for saying the wrong thing well it's not your fault it's because you're not being allowed to be a manly man and that's because of feminism and never mind the fact on top of the feminism and uh postmodernist marxism which in and of itself is a bit of an oxymoron 
And his reading of Marx and postmodernism and all of these things, it's, it's actually ahistorical and factually incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been way more people such as Ben Burgess, uh, Michael Brooks, Rest in Power, who have mm-hmm. done an amazing job deconstructing Jordan Peterson. And I think it's really important that people keep doing that and going after him on you know the fact that he's a total clown and sounds like Kermit the Frog. I think it's totally fair <laughs> to mock him. And it must have been so hard to keep a, a, a serious voice yeah absolutely (laughs) this dude when kermit the frog is yelling at you about free speech yeah it's uh, like 10 o'clock in the morning and he's just like he can't even like properly communicate like what he's angry about he's just he's just screaming at me it was just well he probably hadn't had his benzos of that day and as as someone in recovery myself I say that with all the the love and care as as a person in recovery. However, I don't think it's a good idea to put yourself into a coma so that you can kick benzos. And I highly don't recommend that. There's other ways such as harm mm. reduction that are really good to do that. But uh, yeah, and I think that's the other thing too that's important to remember. This guy tried to give people the the steps to being a, a man in the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. And really there's maybe one or two points that are okay in it, but he can't even navigate the world himself without, you know, falling into addiction. Right. So Absolutely. hopefully that's damaged his points a little bit or his, you know, stature in, in the world, because I think his, his work is really, really harmful. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, and I've, uh, initially, uh, when he was surging in popularity, people I know who are on the progressive side of things kind of started taking in his information and thinking, oh, well, that's not so bad, right? I think that's that's why it's really important to challenge those folks, Peterson especially, because he, he is also really powerful with the amount of followers he has. Yeah. Yeah, it's really scary. Isn't he from Al- like Calgary too? Originally? Maybe. Yeah. Wow. But um, sorry, I just totally went on a a tirade there. I I just have a lot of thoughts about Jordan Peterson. And I think it's also because as a father now, I could see how being on some positive masculinity type stuff, right? It's There's not a lot of it out there. And so when you're trying to work through that, it's if you come across that and then the YouTube uh, algorithms catch you. It could mm-hmm. it, it can take you to a really grim place. place. Absolutely. But yeah, if anyone out there is listening and wants parenting advice, I'm a much better source for parenting advice than Jordan Peterson. I guarantee you, I will not make you eat nothing but red meat. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> He's from Edmonton also. He's from Edmonton. Yeah, okay. So. <laughs> the quick, the quick Fact check. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that's... that's, that's still Edmonton's an L fault. for Alberta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still good job, Alberta. But actually, that's a really good segue into talking about, though, the work you're doing now, which I think is super important. You know, I just want to step back and say, folks in who are struggling right now, myself, I'm someone who has not had booze in eight years and had other substance issues prior as well. And I just think that if you're looking for support at all, please feel free to reach out info at ourcalgary.org. I'm happy to talk to anybody about that sort of stuff in a non non judgmental way. And if you, if you're looking for supports, there's, there's lots out there 
that aren't necessarily 12 step stuff either. But so you're, you're doing addiction support work now. Is that right? Yeah, I do that part time. I'm also, I also do social media for like nonprofits, but the harm reduction or the, the addictions work is totally different than anything I studied. But while I was working as a reporter at the star, I did a couple stories on the opioid crisis and what different agencies and organizations in the city were doing to combat that. And when I decided to quit Metro and I needed like a, a break, my friend was working at this one organization and she said, just apply. And been I've been doing this for like over a year and a half now. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome. So yeah. I think this is a really timely subject. And I just saw something today, actually, where the premier, you know, talking out against decriminalization, essentially, the framing of it, I'm not going to repeat. It's disgusting. It's factually inaccurate. It's scientifically inaccurate. Mm -hmm. But I will say he ended with the hashtag recovery works, which in and of itself is really hard to push back against. But I am, again, going to say this very clearly for folks listening. I am a person myself in recovery and can say 100% with a total lived experience and assuredness that recovery, when it comes to opioids, without harm reduction supports, all you do is have one relapse and you're done. You're done. I've lost so many friends in my journeys over the time, over the years, in these eight years of not drinking and not doing drugs, some and all ages, all ages, right? So, I just would love to hear your thought on what the government's current response to the opioid epidemic is and how they are treating supervised consumption services. As someone coming from your your background as a journalist who's covered this, and also as now someone who is in doing amazing work. And, and helping people get back to their lives. Yeah, so first I just want to state that I am very pro-harm reduction. I see it as the only way to combat the opioid crisis and just addiction in general. I don't think many people know how hard it is for your body to just cut cold turkey, especially with the more harder, dangerous substances. But this government is so... It's like a very like Reagan-esque view on drugs, but they are so against harm reduction and safe injection sites. Like it just blows my mind. Like a lot of what he's saying is is just lies. Like and academics and doctors and scientists have have um, come forward and said, you know, the the message that the UCB government is saying is wrong, but they keep pushing for this like anti-harm reduction agenda, which like harm reduction is, is like recovery, you know? And it's just really unfortunate because I think so many people are gonna die and it's not even really a population I don't think that most people really care about. I think we view the death of addicts as like whatever, maybe they asked for it because they're doing drugs or they're they're drinking or or something but um it's always sad and it's always like a loss to like our society when when someone overdoses and we should treat it like really seriously and yeah yeah 100% no i and i think that's the other thing too right i if i'm not mistaken at this point in time 
we've actually lost more people in Canada to overdoses than to COVID-19. Yeah, I think you're right. right. So I think that because there's been decades of this idea that if you fall into addiction, that you are a f- you failed as a person, you weren't strong enough, and mm-hmm. it, the fault is on that person rather than saying, actually, we as society have failed you. Absolutely, because like our we live in such a pro consumption of alcohol culture and even like drugs to an extent like what do you do like after you get off from work if you like work in a corporate office or even when I was a journalist like everybody goes and has like a drink at happy hour right so and we like love especially during stampede like everybody's like on the streets everybody's drinking from like 10 a.m to like midnight well 10 o'clock in the morning even yeah yeah it's crazy And there's like this bro culture, like associated with drinking. Um, There's a corporate culture. So I understand why people and like life is also really hard. So I'm not going to judge people based on like how they're coping with like their circumstances. I don't know. I don't know their personal stories and it's not my place to judge. But we, we literally have created this society that is so pro alcohol and so pro drugs. And the only reason that you would like look at someone weird as if they were actually if they were like an addict living in a shelter or something then you're like oh like how could that happen to you but like how how can that not when Mm -hmm. you know yeah no absolutely i don't think i've met a single person in recovery who didn't it is very rare where i met someone who did not have a history of some sort of sexual sexualized violence enacted toward them or physical violence or you know very rarely the the folks that i encountered it was Mm -hmm. more about the sort of malaise of capitalism or just feeling nothingness in their lives and then just started drinking Mm -hmm. right and not to say that there is something anything wrong with that too because some of my friends who were the relapsed in that way also died, right? So I think it's, mm-hmm. it's so multi-layered, and you know, this is for me as someone. And I guess I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I don't care. I'm someone who did the twelve steps. It worked for me, right? Mm-hmm. But everybody has a different approach, and I know some folks that it took dozens of times, and it wasn't until they took a more uh, harm reduction approach to it that it actually stuck for them, because yeah. that's the other thing that the UCP government especially is really trying to gloss over the fact, right, that where they where they frame the supervised consumption services as, to use their words, drug sites, which is a disgusting mm-hmm. framing of it, but it's meant to trigger a negative reaction in the public, obviously anyone who hears mm-hmm. or reads it. By framing it in this way, then it eliminates the discussion around how there are actually wraparound services in these supervised consumption sites, right? So they're getting access to mental health practitioners. They're getting access to just in general, a GP, right? So so then you have less likelihood of community transmission of, you know, HIV, hepatitis, and so on. And... Even just from a, a strictly, which I think is also kind of a gross perspective, but from a strictly 
fiscal position, supervised consumption services actually saves money, <laughs> right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It reduces the burden on EMS. It reduces the amount of death that we're seeing in our city. So, but I don't know. This government doesn't care about stats and science. So, whatever. It's true. It's true. And I mean, they're not, they're not alone. Like, this is the other thing, too, that... I fell down a conspiracy well very many years ago, so I'm very loath to to fall into conspiracies again as a result of it. But it is, I think it's very telling that you have folks in Ontario and folks in Alberta, governments, I should say, governments in Alberta and Ontario, almost mirroring each other word for word, policy by policy around mm-hmm. specific issues, whether it be around supervised consumption things or university mm-hmm. policies and so on. One thing I think that's super interesting that does not get spoken about enough when it comes to Jason Kenney, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts if you've heard this at all when you were at the Star, is Jason Kenney's brother, whose name is escaping me right now, but he used to run a quote-unquote treatment center called Newer Havana, which is a terrible name, in Kelowna that was shut down by the Ministry of Children and Family Development because it was operating without a license. Yeah. Had you heard about this at all? No. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. So basically, and I don't know what his family relationship is like. Yeah. Right? I I have no idea. But I do. So here's a couple more things. Uh, A friend of the show sent this stuff to me a while ago. I'm just going to pull a quote. So there's a infotel.ca, which is a Kelowna local newspaper, has a really great story on it. And I'll put that in the show notes. It's The headline is Form pati- Former Patients Share Troubling Experience at Kelowna Treatment Center. And it's pretty vile. Uh, do you mind if I, I read this to you? Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to read one one line here. One young girl said that she had been on a number of prescription medications, including antidepressants and anxiety medications, when she had arrived at Nirvana. During her admission, Mr. Kenny, Jason Kenny's brother, had confiscated the prescription medications and locked them away, forcing her into what was effectively a cold turkey withdrawal. Oh, yeah. My yeah. And then. That is- his sister-in-law inter- like did more things as well. And it's, yeah, it's disgusting. And so this is really concerning to me. So here's the other thing that's really interesting as well. So all of this fallout happened and now they have a, an institute or whatever in Ontario discussing how they're able to actually open anything at this point. But here's another really fascinating piece. So they move shop to the Cayman Islands Mm-hmm. Another Kenny brother, Martin Kenny, is a lawyer there, financial lawyer or something like that. Sketchy, sketchy right? And then, <laughs> it's so sketchy. yeah, and the here is this one is super interesting to me. So Jamie Ellerton, who was at the time running a Canaptis public relations agency, intervened for the Kennys, the Nirvana Kennys, we'll call them. I think that's funnier. Nirvana Kennys. And so he was their publicist. So funny thing about Jamie Ellerton. Jamie Ellerton used to work for Jason Kenny. He was also a staffer to, what's his schmuck? Tim Hudak, the 
reactionary conservative that wanted to lose a hundred to cut a hundred thousand public sector jobs like that was part of their policy and that's why the liberals uh won under under kathleen win that election year but jamie ellerton was hudak's assistant he also ran for city council in toronto once upon a time and not a lot of people know this jason kenny was at jamie ellerton's wedding yeah So, yeah, so they hired Jamie Ellerton, who has this close relationship to Jason Kenney. And as we know, Jason Kenney loves to keep his people close, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's got one of his his former staffers is running a forced birth activist organization here in Alberta right now. He's got his his little his little minions all over the place, all over the country. And the fact that one of his closest people, Jamie... I lost it. <laughs> Sorry, it was, where are we going? Yeah. So, so even though Jason Kenney has been one of the most anti-LGBT premiers, he was, yeah. and he, he went to Jamie's wedding. And prior to that, Jamie was getting money from his literal family, his blood family, to defend this really backwards and disgusting talk therapy tough love approach to to recovery and now this guy is saying that we're not going to fund supervised consumption services in the most used scs in all of canada in lethbridge Mm -hmm. in opioid overdose awareness week Do you see why I'm saying it's hard not to fall down some sort of conspiracy well? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did all the talking there. I'm really, but anyway. No, no, that was so fascinating. I'm going to actually fall down the same well, I think, in a couple of hours. Yeah, so. there's, oh, I have a whole bunch. So, yeah, I mean, if if anyone's interested in exploring this this a bit more, get at me. I, I have a lot more info on it. I'm just a podcast that just started. I'm not a journalist. I don't have the resources or the law. I know lots of lawyers, but I don't really want to get into a defamation lawsuit or a slap lawsuit before I even get to my 10th episode. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I'm being very cautious. If we get up to a thousand subscribers, then I'll be a bit more reckless. Woo. Can't wait. <laughs> One down. Yeah, I've got 998 to go. <laughs> yeah, I got my second one last night. Yeah. It was good. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So just gonna, big moves. Yeah, make it moves. Make it moves. And $485 away from the first goal. So mm-hmm. just quick plug p- patreon.com slash our Calgary. Uh, <laughs> I, I would love to talk about the things that. A lot of people know in journalism across Canada, but don't want to talk about. We can dance around this if you want mm-hmm. a little bit, but I think it's interesting, right? There's and, and I speak about this in the sense that. So I worked in Toronto City Hall during the years of Rob Ford's mm-hmm. mayoralty, so Doug's little brother, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a lot of stories that never made it out there. There's a really great podcast called The Gravy Train, highly recommend that captured some of those stories that didn't make it out there. But there's other ones too around nightclubs and sex workers and things like that. And 
on the one hand, I understand how you can't talk about these things because unless you have enough sources verifying the story, that's one part of it. But then there's also things like about people's personal lives that don't get talked about, which I think are important and relevant, especially if they're doing harm to certain communities. In my opinion, I think that's because it's it's about access and because Canadian media and journalism is so small and cloistered and homogenous, people don't want to lose the, the potential for access to other stories, which I think is bullshit. What are your thoughts on why we don't talk about certain people's personal lives in spite of the fact they're doing harm to to people in communities that they might be part of? I don't know. I feel like ethically, maybe it would be a shitty thing to do. But I guess like there's always the fear of like a lawsuit or like some kind of retaliation and newsrooms aren't so big anymore and there's not as much like money to back up these claims i guess i actually don't know too much about this like all i know is that a lot of calgary there's a lot of bad politicians in calgary that's all the all the tea i have (laughs) (laughs) yes there are (laughs) they're all they're not good people beyond that like i don't know why we aren't able to to talk about it I guess you just don't want to be that bad guy who like out somebody who's like very anti LGBTQ. And even, even if they are or very, if they have a drug issue not, yeah, or uh, whatever, and they're anti-drugs or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Cause that, that just seems to me like ethically weird. And would I like, so just to I be clear, know. we're, we're all speaking in very in much hypotheticals. In the hypotheticals and in the alleds. Absolutely. We're, ve- we're, we're very much within the margins of the alleged and the hypotheticals. That's right it. Now. Just all safe stuff. But, um, yeah. yeah, ethically, I think, think that would be strange. And then I'd also, like, it, do we have the permission? Like, what gives us the right to tell those kinds of stories, you know? And, like, what good will it do? I don't know. I would feel like a bad person. Maybe that's why I'm not a, when I'm not a journalist anymore. I don't, I mean, I think that's fair to say. I think that's absolutely fair. Maybe I also read too much Gawker back in the day. <laughs> Right. Rip Gawker, you know, Rip Splinter and all those other ones, too. But it is interesting, right? In Canadian media, there really is a huge aversion to totally to punching power in the face Mm. in that same sort of way. And the only sort of other the only publication that really has done that is Frank magazine. And they're kind of trash now. Yeah, I don't know. It's and, you know, is that a Canadian cultural thing or is that also just this? weird sense of Canadian politeness, but Canadian politeness in the face of harmful policy, harmful mm-hmm. actions against people. Yeah. Right? Maybe. Totally. I think it does have to do with Canadian politeness a little bit, but also I think with the exception of like the four, like Rob Ford and Justin Trudeau, Canadian politicians aren't really considered they're not really like celebrities in the way they are in the states right so maybe that plays into it a little bit but it's weird though right too at the same time you'll also have on the right side the right wing side of media Mm -hmm. folks like ezra 
Ugh. who yeah exactly mm-hmm. so like that's the, that's another piece uh i think that people don't really explore right is that these folks they go in and out of these different places in media and i think maybe you and i can have another conversation about sort of how there is this real right-wing capture of of media and how these fake stories that populate people's consciousnesses via facebook and so on come from these disgusting, grimy corners of Canadian internet. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Depressing. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a bit about Canadian media, Mm -hmm. Mary, your, your life in Canadian media briefly here in Calgary. So you've chosen a new career path, which I think is awesome and amazing. And I think it's really reflective of so many young journalists really globally now at this point, right? Where it's it's like the folks who have family money or whatever that can, you know, like the Ronin Pharaohs of the world, we'll say, can do these big stories and so on. But mm-hmm. it, it's, it's much like an artist's life in that in order to pursue a career as a journalist, essentially, you almost have to come from money now or just you know, eat ramen noodles all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. The bank account is not cute. No. Um, So do you think it's something you'd want to go back to at any point? I don't know. I feel like I'm a little bit like disenfranchised uh, from the, like I went into journalism because like I'm pretty passionate about, you know, telling, I'm, I'm really passionate about people and I love storytelling and I am like really motivated by social justice issues and the arts and stuff and that's kind of the roles I've been given um especially like working at Metro that was kind of like my beat but it is so hard to tell these stories you know it's hard to like get the green light on stories surrounding like LGBTQ issues or POC issues unless the story is about oh this trans person was insulted at an airline or this POC person was like beaten up like they don't want to hear good stories of just regular you know LGBTQ people just like living their lives or anything and um, I, I've had a, like, I think a good example of it is when I was like in journalism school, I was, I was wanting to write a story on like the disappearance of Chinatown. And at that time in Calgary, there was some, some fight back from the city in Chinatown over a couple of buildings, I think, wanting to be built. Yeah. And I had my uh, white professor halt the project because we were just pitching our ideas to her. And she was like, why should I care about this? And wow. I was like, well, it's not for you to care about. Like, I don't expect you to, as like a white woman, I don't expect you to understand the the importance of something like Chinatown. But there is a need for stories like that. And there is a community who like wants stories like that and wants to read stories like that. So, and it's also one of the largest ethnocultural populations in Canada. So Yeah. <laughs> and so city. that story would have done amazing. Yeah. It would have done amazing, but it never got greenlit. But that's the problem because like even even if you have a lot of, you know, reporters of color the gatekeepers, the editors are all white, you know, and they don't get some stories. I had an editor at DAR. I wanted to do a story on um, LGBTQ issue, racism within the LGBTQ community. 
And this woman was like, oh, I didn't know they experienced racism as well as if you can like, and I don't have the time Mm. to explain like, you know, the intersection of things to this lady, you know? So there is just all of these issues. And I feel like it's such an honor when, like, it's a big privilege when people tell you their story and then they have you are given all the power to tell the story. You can make them look as good or as bad as you want, right? And they trust that you will take that story and you would, you will treat it with respect. And in the end, it will be a product that will like satisfy them. I don't, didn't really feel like I could do that in those newsrooms where you know I'm I'm giving it to editors or um, other colleagues who like don't really understand the issue or like why it's it's important or I don't know. So it's hard to be a journalist and an educator at the same time. Yeah. Cause that's tiring too. Cause like, I can't just like report, do my, do my job as like just a journalist who's like filing stories. You're also having to kind of like explain, okay, this is why I chose this word. And this is why we can't use this. And this is why I left this out because I think we're still telling stories as if only white people are going to be reading right. them, which takes away from the actual story. So it's the, the, beyond the male gaze then it's the the white gaze the white gaze yeah that sounds weird uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's creepy i feel uncomfortable yeah, uh maybe i'll edit that <laughs> oh man okay uh i think that was a really that's a good spot so let me just uh collect my thoughts there cool Oh, and side note too, while, while I'm just collecting that, um, if you are interested in pictures, interesting stories, uh, my friend Denise Balkasun is uh, the editor at Chalane Magazine now, and she's kind of Ooh. teen voguing it up there in a sense. Cool. So if you have story ideas, you, are you on Twitter at all? I am, yeah. Okay. Yeah, follow her, D-Bal- uh, or no, it's just Balkasun. What's your Twitter too? I'll... Um, I changed it. It's called the film thought. It's not a real, no. <laughs> it's not my professional it's Twitter account, but film I am. Um, T-H-O-T? Yeah. T-H-O-T, yeah. <laughs> the film thought. Yeah. Cause I was like, I, I'm always like making fun of Jason Kenny, and I was like, I actually don't want him to know who yeah, I am. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, Mary, I, I hear you. So it, it's on top of, I guess the, in a sense, there is that emotional labor on top of on top of just trying to do your job, right? Absolutely, yeah. And you're not getting paid extra for that emotional labor. You're not getting paid no. extra to edit, you know, someone's references to people's ethnocultural backgrounds, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not getting paid editor scale for that, but you're being, uh-huh. you're in a sense being asked to editorialize white writers' work. And that shouldn't be an expectation yeah. if they're not going to put you in an editor position. Is that fair to say? I would say so. Yeah. 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 So basically to make Canadian media a bit better, uh, you know, change the editorial rooms. And I think there was, there's been a big call for that in the past little while, right. In terms of mm-hmm. who who's up there. And at the same time, I, I recognize there is experience, there is seniority, there is war wounds, that that is that are learned from and relationships that are learned from but how do we expect canadian media to accurately reflect 
mm. what Canada is now. Yeah. If we don't even have a semblance of, of representation in the producer, editor, editor room, and so on, right? Mm-hmm. But these rooms are also like quite hostile too. They can be at least. And you're like often like belittled for the stories you want to tell or your stories aren't given as much value as like maybe like a white male reporter. And I just didn't want to like struggle so much in my job or like have it be so stressful and, and feel so down all the time over it. So I think we have to change that kind of culture, change the editorial people who are the gatekeepers to telling the stories and then and then hopefully more people of color will you know stay in it long enough to get to a position where they can be editors and you know can be all like kumbaya and beautiful and wonderful and one day one day at a time Uh, (laughs) yeah i mean i i agree i think also though my feeling is that in canada folks who who have different perspectives and people who want to hear those different perspectives. And this is me pitching the show again in a way roundabout way, but I think it is really crucial that one, we amplify those outlets that are trying to change things, whether it be media co-ops and so on. And, you know, I I can't speak to what the makeup of those are, but pulling away that chokehold that the big media companies have, yeah. And I think, you know, Sprawl Calgary, Alberta Advantage, just two examples awesome. that come to mind locally, right? Yeah, they're doing great different, work. Diff, yeah, different tax, right? I would say Alberta Advantage is a little more confrontational. Sprawl Calgary <laughs> is, you know, more sort of on the policy, very, very city focused. I'm trying to find my 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 lane in between the two, I think. Nice. <laughs> they all coexist. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's just it, right? I think it's, again, I'm happy to, to amplify that. I learned from them and I hope eventually folks will will learn from this show too and you know and again i think also someone who is white passing i guess for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. i I think i'm able to navigate different spaces right and at the same time understand that i will never know what it's like to walk through the world in the same skin as my mom (laughs) right Mm -hmm. but to literally have people treat my mother worse than me right in front of me has very much informed my worldview and attitudes towards the power structures that exist, right? Absolutely. And I think it's important. And I think that's, for now, while we still have some openness in media, if we can build up new institutions and new spaces, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. for people who have perspectives that aren't getting past the white editors. I think, again, Denise Belkasun is doing a great job of that at Chalane right now. Then, then I think we can actually create new narratives of, of what Canada is and also highlight those important stories of people existing. So you have an open invitation to do that here. I don't, I think we'll need to get a th- to a thousand subscribers before I can actually do that with a good conscience, though, because I don't want. I'm very much about get people getting paid for their work. So, one more reason 
Come on, guys. <laughs> to, to, to subscribe so I can bring Mary on the show more and, and hire as a co-host if, if you're up for it. <laughs> Sorry, I totally just put you on the spot <laughs> while recording. Job don't, interview. Don't, <laughs> it's fine. No, think about it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm putting that in the show, but you're not legally obligated in any way, shape, or form. I'll put that I in the show. I guess we'll see. We will see. <laughs> when, Send the checks. Okay. All right. We'll come back to this conversation when I get to 100 subscribers. How about that? Beauty. Awesome. Mary Johannes, thank you for your work that you're doing in supporting vulnerable communities. Thank you for the work you've done in the past, highlighting stories that haven't been told or needed to be told. And for spilling some tea on Jason Kenny. Anytime, always. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Take care. Anytime. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something today. And if you agree with me that Mary would make an excellent co-host or just want to hear me talk a little bit less, smash the patreon.com slash our Calgary link in the show notes and whatever you can contribute will be greatly, greatly appreciated. 98 more subscribers, and hopefully I can get back to Mary and persuade her to continue helping tell Calgarians stories. One last thing, for my two current subscribers and whoever else is listening, unfortunately I think I overestimated how much I could get done on my own. Chasing interviews, editing, and producing the audio while getting easier still requires a significant amount of time on top of everything else that I have to do in my life outside of the podcast. So until I get to that 100 Patreon subscribers target, it will have to be just one episode a week for now. Once I hit that target, I'll feel comfortable reaching out to someone about sharing the workload, whether it be Mary or someone else. Until then, I am going to be realistic and commit to getting you one episode a week every Thursday for Patreon subscribers and Friday for all other platforms. Episode 004 of Our Calgary was written, recorded, and produced by me, myself, and I, for now, in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksiga, Kainai, Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation, Region 3, and the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Take care. Take care.